This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would teach us what it means to live in the body of Christ and what we owe to one another. We ask this all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So we're at the end of our series on 2 Corinthians. And uh, this has been a tougher series, right? I mean, these are, these are letters of struggle. Paul has said some really hard things to the Corinthian church, and to us as well. But despite all of that, I want to say that these two letters are Paul's love letters to the Corinthian church. He has sacrificed himself and his own life for them. And he recounts this over and over again, especially in the second letter. And he's begging them to be reconciled to each other and to him for Christ's sake. So this morning, I'm going to argue that what makes sense of the Corinthian correspondence as a whole and of our passage today in particular is Paul's Eucharistic theology. Those who belong to Christ belong to a new kind of social order. As he says in Romans, we, the many who belong to Christ by faith and baptism, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We need to understand what Paul means by this if we're going to understand what Paul is commending to the Corinthian church in this passage. See, the Corinthians have been given a new identity in Christ. They are co-heirs with Christ of all the heavenly joys. They have a heavenly Father who provides everything for them. They will even, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, be given the honor of judging the angels with Christ. This identity is maintained, Paul says, through their koinonia, their communion, their participation in the life of Jesus, the risen and ascended Savior. And it has implications for how they live, to one, live with one another. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This meal that we take together is the same meal that the Corinthians shared, and it has the same meaning for us. But the way that the Corinthians have been living and acting is in stark contradiction to this identity. It's almost as if Paul is saying that the Corinthians do not understand or they do not believe that they have this new identity in Christ, that this is their principal identity. They are continuing to live as if the norms of the Corinthian society were their norms. You see, the Corinthians as a whole were nouveau riche in Paul's day, right? They had this newfound wealth. Greek Corinth had been destroyed about a century prior to Christ, and it had been rebuilt as a Roman colony. And it was a strategic port city, and it had bustling commerce, it was a pilgrimage site, and there was a ton of traffic around religion. And its people were proud and boastful and honor-seeking, just like the Nouveau Riche in every generation. They liked to sponsor public works so that they could have their names written on inscriptions in big letters. And they wanted to be those who were thought of as the best, the most honorable, the most recognized. And the Corinthian church actually does not seem to see the contradiction between these practices and the new identity that they've put on in Christ. They continue to be proud and boastful and to seek honor from their accomplishments and their wealth. 
And their honor-seeking actually creates these schisms between them. The Puritan theologian John Owen described this word or defined this word schisma in Greek, which we translate as schisms, as heart divisions. And I think that's actually the best translation I've ever read of that word, heart divisions. Their hearts were divided from each other because they were putting their emphasis, their weight, their, the, the sort of the measure of their being upon their accomplishments, their status. Their hearts were not set upon Christ, but rather they continued to put on the values of Corinth. They were not putting on Christ. They were putting on the values of Corinth. And because of that, they turned the Lord's Supper, which would have been hosted by the wealthy Corinthian families who had large houses, into their own personal lavish dinner parties. And they threw these elaborate banquets, and they would drink and eat lavishly with their wealthy friends, but they would leave out the working poor and the slaves who were part of this church. As you see, the poor had to wait until after they got off work to make it to the banquet. But the wealthy would go ahead and start eating because they could show up early. So they were treating it like their own kind of private dinner parties. They did not see that their new identity in Christ required them to see the poor members of their church as their brothers and sisters. So Paul says, wait upon one another before you eat. That's the whole meaning of the communion. You see, because they were treating it as their own banquet, their own private dinner party, they didn't discern the Lord's body in the meal. They neither communed with the Lord nor with each other. Because the host used it, used it only to enhance their own prestige and their friendship with those who were like them. The Corinthians also practiced patronage of their prized rhetors. This was a common practice in Corinth at large. So that they'd be able to boast of, their rhetor, of the rhetor's exploits, right? Those exploits became their own kinds of prized possession. But also because the rhetor, who was called a client, would then owe favors to the patron. This was a way of buying the client's loyalty and their favor, and also their silence, should there be occasion to speak of something that, that truth and justice required. So the wealthy Corinthian Christians patronized particular leaders of the Christian movement. That's just what you do, right? You buy your rhetor. And Paul complains about one such group of these folks in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He sarcastically refers to them as super apostles, because they've gone around slandering Paul, right? They belong, they're, they're bought off by these Corinthian families, and they go around slandering Paul and calling into question his apostolic credentials. Paul, by contrast, refuses to speak to the Corinthians with words of power, with profound rhetoric. Though, as the book of Acts shows us, he's very capable of doing this. And he refused their patronage as well. He supports himself instead by tent making, which was his craft, what he knew how to do. He did this while he was among the Corinthians so that he could be all things to all people. He was not going to be bought off by the Corinthians. And this actually, of course, makes the Corinthian church very angry. And it leads them to favor the other leaders who would accept their patronage, who would act like rhetors are supposed to act. So now they rejected and despised Paul, the very one who would evangelize them. Paul had spent years among the Corinthians, and now they've rejected him. They see him as inferior and contemptuous to these new leaders. And in the process of rejecting Paul, of letting their charity towards Paul, their love towards Paul wane, they've become factionalized against one another. And the various households in the church are appealing to different leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow these so-called super apostles. And this brings us to our passage today and the grave consequences of those heart divisions in the body. 
You see, in a previous visit, Paul had begun a collection for the persecuted and poor Jerusalem church among the Corinthians. But because of the rancor and the contempt that many of the wealthier Corinthians feel towards him, they had stopped giving to it. And now, in our passage this morning, Paul says, hey, look at the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church is poor. They've gone through this season of persecution. But that has flowed forth in abundant giving. The Macedonian church, which is poor, has completed their gift to this fund. Whereas you, wealthy Corinthians, you've given almost nothing. And that's because the Macedonian church, in its solidarity with the Jerusalem church, in its own experience of poverty and of suffering, has understood itself as part of the body of Christ. The needs of the ailing members of Jerusalem are their needs. I want you to notice, Paul says, I do not tell you to give as a command. Notice the contrast between that and the Deuteronomy passage. In Deuteronomy it says, you must give, I give you this command. Paul says, I do not give you this as a command. But he, he rather puts before them their identity in Christ and what that is supposed to do to their desires, to their sense of who they are, of what their identity is. And he gives them the example of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, this new identity in Christ is enacted and reinforced in their reception of communion. Communion must make them think of themselves first and foremost, Paul says, as belonging to the family of God and only secondarily to Corinth. The primary identity is the body of Christ. The Corinthians, by contrast, don't understand this. They still think of themselves as belonging first and foremost to Corinth with its way of doing things. The Corinthian problem that Paul addresses in our passage is the unwillingness to live as though they were part of a body. A body which has members scattered throughout the world and whose needs are also the needs of the Corinthians. Paul is really clear in this passage. This collection for the Jerusalem church is not some kind of shakedown of the Corinthians because they've got money. It's not because the Corinthians are loaded and the Jerusalem church is broke that the Corinthians are supposed to give to the Jerusalem church. If that were the case, he would say, hey, look, this is just your duty. This is your obligation. This is what you owe. But he doesn't say that at all. He says, actually, this collection benefits you. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, he says in verse 13, but that as a matter of fairness, fairness in the body, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. And then in verse, chapter, verse 16, notice this. Paul appeals to the Lord's provision of manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16 as the basis for this generosity. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack, because fairness is the point. So we need to pause here for just a moment, because this expressly Eucharistic reference, I want you to understand that, this manna reference is an explicitly Eucharistic reference. In the New Testament, it's crystal clear that we are meant to understand Christ's presence in the Eucharist as the fulfillment of this manna. So we need to pause here just just for a moment to understand this. The giving of manna is the central moment in the drama of Israel. Psalm 78 celebrates it by saying that man ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. You could trust the Lord to provide for you, the psalmist tells Israel, because he provided your ancestors with food from heaven, the bread of angels. And the giving of manna points us forward to Christ. 
Christ refers to himself in John chapter 6 as the bread of life which came down from heaven. He could not be saying it any more clearly that in the Eucharist we receive bread from heaven. We who are the body of Christ live by this bread of heaven. And every time we receive this meal together, we have not only material but spiritual sustenance, the Lord's provision. And you see, the Lord's provision of manna for his people was the basis for how Israel was to treat each other. Do you believe that the Lord is taking care of you or not? If you do, then why do you not share with your brothers and sisters? Our reading from Deuteronomy says that if your brother is needy, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward him. Don't say, hey, the year of Jubilee is right around the corner. All the debts are going to be canceled, so I won't lend now. The passage says, if you do that, your brother will cry out against you and the Lord's wrath will come against you. Generosity is the requirement of those who have received the grace and abundance of the Lord. Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. In other words, what the Lord requires of his people is love and abundance towards one another because they're members of the same family. And that does mean that suspicion and vitriol and hatred and resentment are all excluded from this family. This charity, this love that makes the body a body is what is missing in Corinth. And frankly, it's what's missing today in all of our interactions with one another, especially our online interactions. We live in this cynical and deeply uncharitable age. This week, I have found myself almost in despair. Not only because of the injustices that are happening all over the place, all over the world, the world seems like it's on fire, but also because of the way that we Christians are treating each other in these online interactions. I've heard people calling for greater civility in the way we treat each other in civil society. I'm not opposed to greater civility. But according to St. Paul, we don't so much need civility as much as we need the blazing, self-sacrificial charity of the Holy Spirit. We need the charity of the Holy Spirit shed abroad upon our hearts, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And look, Paul isn't actually all that civil with the Corinthians in these two letters. Maybe you noticed that. He's a prophet to them. In detail, he unpacks their sins and their injustices and he reproves them for it. That's part of why the Corinthians hate him, right? He's all things to all people, but that doesn't mean he's a yes man to all people. Rather, it means that he says hard things to everybody. Paul's an equal opportunity critic. But at the same time, look, he's not grandstanding. He's not virtue signaling. He's not hashtagging his criticism to the Corinthians. He knows them. He has lived with them. He loves them. He's put his own skin in the game for their own salvation. And only on that basis does he say the way you were living does not match the dignity that you possess in Christ. And listen to what he says in chapter 6, just a couple of chapters before our reading. After this long list of things, he has suffered for their sake to commend himself to them. Great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. He then positively talks about the things he's done for them. Genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. On that basis, he says... We have opened wide our hearts to you. We have not closed our hearts to you, but you have closed your hearts to us. 
Now is a fair trade. I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts to us too. Do you understand the logic here? Paul is saying, we belong to this body. I have poured myself out for you. Now you do the same for me and for my brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. You do that. This is a man who loves the Corinthians as if they were his own children. Who can say in our day and age that we have loved one another as Paul loved the Corinthians? We rip each other apart on social media. There is not an ounce of grace on social media. To be honest, my perspective is that social media has made ours one of the most uncharitable of any age. We owe one another so much more in the body of Christ. We cannot go on slandering one another. We cannot go on imputing demonic motives to one another. We cannot write these things that we would never for a minute countenance saying to one another face to face. Paul gives us a rule here. Let's put our own skin in the game for each other before we open our mouths in criticism of one another. That is what it means to repent of our heart divisions against one another. That is what it means to discern the body of Christ and our communion with one another. We need more than civility. We need self-sacrificial love. We need skin in the game for each other. If we're going to criticize and challenge one another, which we must do as well, if we're going to follow St. Paul, we owe it to each other in the body of Christ to love each other sacrificially as well. I want to make one more final point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells the Corinthians that a central element of the giving of manna was that the Israelites were only to gather enough provision for that day. And whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand as well that to receive Christ, the true manna, in the Eucharist means that in the body we also have to share with one another. Because if we do, there will always be enough for everyone. That's what Paul says here in this passage. Now the Corinthians were wealthy when Paul was writing them. So their material wealth should alleviate the needs of the Jerusalem church. And Paul is asking them to trust that they are family with this body in Jerusalem so that when their moment came, when their moment of dire need came, the Jerusalem church would alleviate their needs as well or that some other member of the body of Christ would come and alleviate their needs. The gift of Christ, the true manna, to his body must make us generous in giving to one another in the body of Christ. And this gifting has to go beyond the boundaries of the Corinthian church, Paul says. Paul wants them to understand the multi-ethnic, multinational, multi-class character of this body. He wants them to see that the Macedonian Christians and the Jerusalem Christians are members of this body as well. You see, the Macedonian Christians and the Jerusalem Christians are poor. And the Jerusalem church is persecuted. The Macedonian church has been persecuted. Paul wants the Corinthians to see their burdens as the, as the Corinthians' burdens as well. He wants neither wealth nor ethnicity to be a barrier in them seeing the Macedonians and Jerusalemites as their brothers and sisters in Christ. And I would be remiss if I did not draw attention to the parallel between our own situation and this passage. This morning I read about the Anglican Archbishop of Joss in northern Nigeria, Ben Kwashi. He lives with his wife and many orphan children whom they have taken in as their family members under intense persecution in northern Nigeria. He's been attacked three different times by hostile Fulani tribesmen who are Muslims and who are the majority around them, including this week when the thieves came in the middle of the night to steal all of his cattle. 
And then when his neighbor shined his flashlight upon them, they shot him in the head and killed him. But in the midst of this, Archbishop Kwashi says, this is what God has called us to. Mission amidst persecution. We love one another, and the devil is driving us Christians closer together. These are our brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria. Do we feel our communion with them as we commune with each other this morning? Are their needs our needs? Do we feel strengthened by their commitment to love their Muslim neighbors and share the gospel with them as we do the same here? And I must not also fail to acknowledge the situation on our southern border. Without holding forth about our immigration policies, which I am not qualified to speak on, but which I do feel are deeply broken and flawed, I want to draw attention to the fact that nearly half of the immigrants that are trying to cross our borders are Central Americans, the majority of which are baptized Roman Catholics, and that makes them our brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of them are fleeing gang violence. If they are Christians, then they are our own members, and their concerns are our concerns. Our hearts need to break at the separation of children from parents at the border and about parents and children being locked up indefinitely together. At a minimum, are your hearts not rent by this situation? Do we reach for the psalms of lament? Do we not lament with them as they cry out to God for deliverance? At a minimum, that is what it would mean for, for us to see them as our brothers and sisters. My friends, if we are going to see ourselves as part of this body of Christ, we need to start here. We need to love one another with the self-sacrificial love that Paul talks about. We need to be brothers and sisters to one another. And as we do that, we will come to see ourselves as belonging to a body that transcends our national borders, that encompasses a whole world full of people who are baptized into this body. May we be the body of Christ to one another. May we truly discern the Lord's body in this communion. And may we see ourselves as members of this body and the needs of this body as our own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.